Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey, friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey, friends, and welcome to another episode of The Happy Hour. I'm your host, Jamie, and listen, we've got a great show for you. Uh, first of all, we're going on spring break next week. Anyone else hitting the spring break? Uh, the Ivies have zero plans, so I think it might be a really great spring break with zero plans. Uh, today on the show, Dominique Dubois Gilliard is on, and he released a book, Subversive Witness, Scripture's Call to Leverage Privilege. Came out last August. I just got my hands on it recently. Well, I take that back. I've had it for a while. Finally took it in. This conversation today is so, so, so good. In fact, it's going to be one. I promise you that you're going to send me a message. You're going to say, I have to listen again. I'm just telling you, you're going to have to listen again. I read his book the day before I interviewed him. Or rather, I should say, I listened to it on audio because I ran out of time. Uh, But I highly recommend you read it. And I was so impressed with the way that he was taking some examples from scripture and talking about privilege. He talks about Pharaoh's daughter, Esther, Moses, Paul and Silas, Jesus, Zacchaeus. Really, really good about scripture's call for us to leverage privilege. And we talk a lot about race today, but we talk also and we remind us and you that privilege is not just a racial concept. Like there are all kinds of privilege, whether that be with Um, our abled bodies, our gender or socioeconomic, where you live. So there's a lot that goes into this. I want to tell you to lean into this conversation. You, You won't be disappointed by that at all. Guys, if you like this conversation today, and if you like this show, uh, I'd love for you to share it with a friend. One of my favorite places to see you guys sharing it is over on Instagram. Just take a screenshot that you're listening, share it in your stories, tag me, tag Dominique, and just let everyone know why you're loving this show. Believe it or not, a lot of people find out about our show from their friends sharing on Instagram. And while you're there, find me. I'm at Jamie Ivy. Always love having new friends over on Instagram. You guys, happy Friday. Happy spring break, if this happens to be your spring break, or whatever, happy weekend. Uh, Enjoy this conversation. Lean in, listen. I was profoundly encouraged by this conversation. And remember, Dominic says in this show, and he says in his book, that confronting privilege allows us to live freely and fully in our purpose. And that is what we want as followers of Jesus. Dominic, welcome to the happy hour. Hey, so excited to be here. This is exciting to have you as well. Um... I have been wanting to have a conversation with you about your new book, which I have right here. Um, when did this actually release? Uh, late August of 21. Okay, August of 21. And apparently I'm behind uh, <laughs> behind a little bit, but so I'm grateful for you spending some time with me. Uh, but, but I've been really excited about it. And full disclosure, I like to read everyone's book before I talk to them. It's really a value for me. It's really important. But as you can see, I, I uh, talk to two people a week. I read, <laughs> I got a lot of people coming on here that have written books. And um, yesterday I was prepping for this, you know, my life and what was coming up this week. 
And I realized I had not read your book. And so I'm like, okay, Jamie, what are you going to do? So er early in the morning yesterday, I downloaded the audio and uh, you and I spent a lot of time together yesterday in my ears on speed one and a half. (laughs) And so um, I uh, devoured this book in the best of ways. And I will tell you that when I was getting my nails done yesterday, I was listening to your book and I was crying. Mm. And um, this is some really important work here. And so I'm, I'm, I'm super honored and grateful that you would spend some time with me and my mm. friends on the happy hour. So welcome. So humbled by that. Thank you for, mm. I mean, to me, it just shows a professionalism about podcasting when people take that kind of time and dedication to the work that they do. Because mm. as somebody being interviewed, you can tell when somebody has and has not actually read your book. So. <laughs> I know. I've been on the other side a lot as well. And it's definitely true. Definitely true. Well, before we jump into this conversation, uh, give everyone a little background. You live in Atlanta. What do you do? What takes up most of your time? Yeah. So my nine to five, which is an illusion for anybody who is in ministry. <laughs> Um, is that I serve as the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church, uh, which is a fancy way of saying that I'm a pastor to pastors, helping pastors make connections between scripture, discipleship, and our call to be ambassadors of reconciliation. I do that for our 875 churches uh, throughout North America, and so I spend a lot of time on the road uh, meeting with leadership teams and preaching and teaching and trying to implement writing curricula for our denomination and what we Mm. call immersive discipleship experiences I like curate them and then kind of facilitate them so uh, what is an immersive discipleship experience so one of the experiences when you read the book you'll read about an experience called Sankofa that we offer and so it's an experience where we take people out of their everyday rhythms of life and we take them to sacred places and spaces where blood has been shed for the struggle for equality and freedom and we believe that there's something unique that happens when you're in a sacred space and when you're out of your everyday rhythms that disarm you and allow the spirit to do some of the transforming work that it desires to do in us. And so we have about four different offerings across the country that we do that really are supposed to allow us to kind of enter into the presence of God in a way where our defenses might be down a little bit and we might be a little bit more open Um to what the spirit is desiring to do in the work of transforming our minds. Mm. I'm going to ask you the question that everyone's wondering so that I don't have to ask you after we get off this phone call and all the things. Everyone's going to be like, how do I do this? Is this just for the pastors that you're leading? Nope, this this? is open to anybody. Um, And so I, for show notes, will send you some links to some some of the experiences. Look at you, you're all professional. You're like, we're going to put it in the show notes, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. We would love to have uh, people. Uh, We do Sankofa, for example. We do that twice a year, once in the spring and once in the fall. Um, And the trip starts and ends in Atlanta. It's a three and a half day bus pilgrimage that's really modeled after the 1960 Freedom Rides. Um, And so it's just a tremendously profoundly transformative experience that's become really a hallmark discipleship experience of our denomination. I love that so much. You know, it's interesting when you talk about the word discipleship. A lot of people will say like, and and I'm sure that you feel this right now as someone who is pastoring pastors is there's this kind of, I don't know if it's a phenomenon now or maybe I'm just old enough to 
see it and believe and understand it, but it feels like there's this lack of discipleship within our churches and they are, our people are getting discipled. It's just, they're not being discipled within the church. Is this new or is this the, nothing's new under the sun? Man, you preaching. <laughs> Literally, that's what I go around the country and say all the time. Uh, because I think in the church, we have a bad habit of only using discipleship in a kind of Christianese way, where we think about discipleship exclusively about as the good things about Jesus that we put into our lives. Mm-hmm. But when we actually take discipleship out of a congregational context and use a more Webster dictionary definition, discipleship is to teach, train, and instruct someone to live and interact in a certain way. And the truth of the gospel is that we're kind constantly being discipled by something. Um, And part of the challenge with the work that I do in particular around race is that historically the church has said that race is not a discipleship issue. It's a secular political issue. And so therefore we have not done the deconstruction work around how the world has taught us to think about race within our congregations. And people have been simultaneously able to be a form and abiding by the logics of this world in regards to how it's taught us to think about race and simultaneously proclaiming faith in Christ, which has caused this kind of really (laughs) incoherent kind of ethic in life where people who are really in many ways abiding by the status quo societally uh, are proclaiming faith in Christ, but that faith in Christ is not causing them to live distinctively for Jesus. And so, yeah, this, this discipleship question is huge in the work that I do because the reality is that we are discipled to think about race ever since we're like six months old. Like mm-hmm. uh, the cognitive scientists have talked about implicit bias in the ways that it starts to form and shape us as like six months, as six months year mm-hmm. old. And the truth of the reality about cognitive science has told us that the racial associations that children make by the age of seven is going to dictate their interaction with race for the rest of their life unless they have some kind of cataclysmic encounter that disrupts it, like say a white child choosing to go to historically black college or children entering into an interracial dating relationship or something, something has to disrupt it. And I think historically in the church, we haven't thought that all too often, and I would say this is most explicitly true within white congregations, that we have to, we believe that we don't have to talk about race to our children until they're emotionally mature enough to understand it and comprehend it. And oftentimes that's like in high school. And the truth of how our brains work is usually that's like 10 years, nine late. years too late. And so... That's that's part of what we're up against. Well, I love what you're doing. And when you were talking, I just want to let everyone know in case they don't know who you are, that you're a black man and I'm a white woman. And yep. so they can this question will make more sense when I ask it is you're talking about that, you know, historically, the church has not thought of race. Um, and I think you said politics as well as things to be talked about within the church. Like it's not like a discipleship issue. Would you say I think I know the answer to my question. Would you say that would be in predominantly white churches? Because that doesn't feel like that would be an issue for a uh, predominantly um, African-American church or even Asian-American. Am I right here or am I off? I think you're right. Um, I would say some some ethnic 
in racial backgrounds, I have more of an emphasis of talking about race um, than others. But I would say predominantly in white churches, and I would say increasingly in multi-ethnic churches, um, explicit conversations about race as a discipleship issues have been elusive and mm-hmm. something that has not been a hallmark of the faith formation of that community. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so like to give the example tangibly, um, you know, most people have heard about the talk and the talk that uh, particularly African-American parents give to their children before their kids are able to go and drive for the first time. So they get their driver's permit and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, there's talks before the talk. Um, And for me, like the first conversation I had with my parents explicitly about race was when I was five years old. And my parents sat me down and had a conversation about the fact that as a Black man, I wasn't going to be able to make the same mistakes that some of my peers made. And I was going to have to strive twice as hard to get to the same place that other people did. And yes, it was not fair, but it was a reality that I needed to understand if I was going to successfully navigate life. And Mm -hmm. so the truth is, really, until all parents understand Mm -hmm. that they need to have those same conversations that early on, this conversation is going to be very elusive and hard Mm. to really understand how do we come to the table together in a way where we're really seeing each other and understanding the complexities of how race informs our pursuit of life together. So I imagine that there is a woman who's listening who is white and is thinking, okay, well, Dominique's parents sat him down at five and he says, I need to have these conversations with my son at five. I don't know what I'm supposed to say to them because The truth is, and this is not good, it's just the truth, is that I don't need to have that conversation that your dad had with you with my five-year-old white son. That is a true statement. I would say it's true. I would say you don't need to have the same kind of conversation. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. So what I I fear right now is a white woman is listening and going, okay, then what is my conversation? Yeah, yeah. That's my question. Yeah, yeah. So... I think the conversation you're you're asking great questions. Um, so one thing I would ask, I would recommend all your listeners to do uh, is to watch this documentary. Uh, it's free online. Um, it's about Brian Stevenson and the work he does in the Equal Justice Initiative. It's called True Justice. And in this, so you can just search True Justice. It'll take you right to the Equal Justice Initiative's website, and you can watch it for free there. He has this story that he tells about him and his sister uh, going to uh, on a church trip, and they get the opportunity to swim in a real swimming pool for the first time. Mm. And it's this heartbreaking story, but he asked this this very profound question. He says, at the end of what happens to them, he said, this will be something that I will remember for the rest of my life. But the question I have is, will the white kids remember the moment that their parents yanked them out of the swimming pool because two black kids got into the water? And so I think it's the same conversation, but from a different vantage point. And it's reflecting on what does it mean to not be the one who felt the shame in the moment, but the one who ultimately went with the status quo and had Mm -hmm. the majority of people saying this was actually the way that things were supposed to be. How do we sit down our children and say like, you know, 
you don't have to live in a society where the messaging is ultimately going to tell you these negative things about your skin color and your hair texture and these different things. But what you do have to overcome is the fact that you have peers who are wrestling with this and see themselves as less than and slowly but surely that can be a kind of way that you take on a mentality that you take on. And the truth of the gospel is that we belong to each other and that there are not people who are more reflective to the, of the image of God than other people and that are more beloved by God than other people. And so there are going to be these societal lies that slowly but surely start to teach you that you are different than your brothers and sisters of color. And that's not true. We don't believe amen, that in amen. this house. And so that, that, those are the kind of conversations. I love that. I love that. I A lot of these conversations um, are important and valuable to me because like I, I told you before we started, and if you are a new listener, you might not know this, but if you've been a listener for a long time, I'm raising three black children and one, one white child. And so we have these conversations. And I've said before that um, sometimes even the conversation with my white son feel um, – like I could forget to, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. I see the I see the um, urgency for my other three children, and so that complacency that like oh I'll get to that later. It almost feels like oh that is a reminder to me of like how all parents who are raised no matter what you know skin color your childhood how these conversations matter. But I can see the urgency. I feel it more with my other kids. Um, so I get what you're saying. All right, let's dive into this book because I let me. Can I recommend you one You do resource? whatever you want. You do just whatever you want. Quick. This is your uh, rodeo. <laughs> just because of the conversation we've been having, we actually created a discipleship resource for our children to start oh, having good. these conversations. And so there's a, a resource. It's free, 100% free. It's 24 uh, lessons uh, that you can go through. And the curriculum is called Justice Journey for Kids. And this it starts so to good. introduce these conversations and this this content in age appropriate ways for seven to 11 year olds um that's the focus of the curricula so i just wanted to offer that up as a resource justice for kids justice journey for kids justice journey for kids we'll put in the show notes um valuable resource thank you thank you thank you thank you all right your book subversive witness and uh the subtitle is scriptures call to leverage privilege And I was having a conversation with a friend recently. Um, in fact, it was last week. I was telling her I was going to be interviewing you. And I was like, hey, you got to check out his book. And I haven't read it yet. Blah, 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 blah. We're talking about it. And she said, oh, she said, um, my dad is pastor, white. And he said the word privilege from the pulpit. And she said, every deacon coming in, you know, complaining. Yep. And I thought it's interesting because um, privilege is way more than just, you know, ethnicity skin color but it can make people feel very 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 uncomfortable so first let's do this first let's define privilege so we can kind of get that elephant out of the room and then i would love to hear from you why does that word make people feel uncomfortable yeah so privilege is taking a sober look at society and realizing that we live in a world that's been tainted by sin And because of that taintedness, um, the 
image of God is not equitably validated in all people, particularly based off elements of their embodiment, how their bodies were constructed and created by God. So uh, be it their gender, be it their race, be it their mental cognition, be it their physical uh, abilities, um, there ultimately slowly but surely has been created this sliding scale of humanity where certain people are seen treated and respected with more humanity, dignity, and civility than others um, by individuals, but also by systems and structures. And uh, that has manifested itself in legislation that has said that certain people should be treated in ways that other people aren't, i.e. in our own country and the declaration where it calls our indigenous sisters and brothers merciless Indian savages. Or when we look at the, our history where black people were legally classified as property instead of people, or in the history of our country with things like the Chinese Exclusionary Act where Chinese Americans were, or Chinese people were excluded from immigrating into our country for 60 years, or the Japanese internment camp where we round up 120,000 people and forced them into incarceration camps. And so it is taking seriously the fact that sin has distorted how we see and treat one another. And because of that, certain people who have not had the onus of trying to live in a world where society, its culture, customs, and laws have ultimately othered them and diminished their humanity in a way, get to live free of those kind of restrictions. And other people, those are everyday realities for them. Mm -hmm. And so let me land this in scripture real quick for people. Um, a beautiful example of this, we see it in uh, Exodus 1, 6 through 2, 10, which is really the story of Moses is being Moses being born into the world. And in this passage, we see that there is a flourishing Egyptian empire, but everything Egypt has is predicated upon their dehumanization of their Hebrew neighbors, their exploitation, their enslavement um, of their Hebrew neighbors. And in this passage, Moses's mom gets pregnant and she lives in a land where the law of the land says that she must put her child to death because of his ethnic identity and because of his gender intersectionality. I know it's a super controversial term, but that's what's going on there. Two different identities have to come together to create this unique uh, tragic reality for her son. And she's in this position where she has to say, do I follow the law and I put my child to death or do I break the law? Um, out of my love for my child. And it's this horrid situation that no Egyptian mother ever had to ask herself, but only a Hebrew mother who birthed a boy would be in this predicament. And so there, scripture's trying to give us eyes to see and ears to hear that this kind of sin distorts reality and what it mm. means to try to to live and flourish and kind of be all God created us to be uh, in a fallen world. And so that's that's kind of what I'm trying to help people to to root the conversation and privilege about. It's not about 
uh, and this is really important for me, the conversation about privilege, I know you're going somewhere and I'm going to let you guide me, but I think this is really important. The conversation about privilege is not about condemnation or shaming or guilting one another into coerced actions. I really believe the Christians are called to acknowledge privilege because it is real and because doing so liberates us from its power and confronting it allows us to freely and fully live into our created purpose as the people of God. I love that confronting it allows us to like freely live in our purpose. And when, when you state it like that, it sounds like, of course, let's let's tackle this. Let's let's talk about this. Let's do this. But again, there's so much tension by so many people with feeling shame or guilt or condemnation when that is I mean, it feels like something that Satan would just take and be like, OK, this is a very helpful conversation, but I make everyone feel real bad about it. So then nobody <laughs> wants to enter into it. Am I right? Yep, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 And you, uh, you are asking why, why that's the case. So I think part of the reason why is generally when we have this conversation about privilege, the conversation has been too narrow. Most of the times when we talk about privilege, we only talk about racial privilege as if it's the only manifestation of privilege. But there's multiple manifestations of privilege. And then I think the other piece that we've gotten wrong is usually the conversation stops with, are you a person of privilege or are you not? And I'm actually less invested in that conversation uh, because to me, it's very hard if you sit with history soberly to deny that privilege is a real thing. Mm -hmm. But for me, the more interesting question, and I think the more faithful question for the church is, once we get past that conversation about is privilege real or not, the real question is, what do you do with privilege? Right. But there are still so many people in the church who would deny and, and I'll use racial privilege, like you said, that, that it has been narrow. And I think within our country, the way that the history that we have has made that even harder. But there are still so many people within the church that would deny that even exists. And you just said, if you sit with history soberly, you can't deny it. And so my question is, where is the is it the lack of what you would call? And I think Latasha Morrison said this, too. Like, is it common or what is when you talk about history? Like yeah, a common, common memory, common yeah. memory. Yes. Yeah. Tasha talks about that in her book. Is that where we get the division is that the, the common memory is gone. So therefore, it is easy for someone to sit with what they think is history. Yep. OK, talk yeah. about that for a second, because there's people in our churches who this conversation makes them super uncomfortable. And I appreciate the fact that you said, like, privilege is not just about a race. And so many times we stop there. But I will say and, and, and I, I love that your book. Oh, I just I cannot tell you enough how much I love the work you've done here. Uh, it's not just about racial privilege by any means in this book. And um, I think people need to know that because they can also be fearful of that. Um, but within our churches, the, with the spotlight has been on um, privilege as, as it comes to race in the last couple of years. Yep. It's been highlighted, thankfully so. But where do you think the, the, the problem is? Is it the common memory? Is that where, where lies the problem? It's the common memory. It's the um, lack of coherence and I would say historic factual barometer within our educational systems. Um, I think that different states and different counties and, you know, public, private, all these things, people get to selectively choose what's actually included within textbooks and therefore taught to children as historic fact. Um, I think right now we, we were, we're living in a moment where historic 
fact has become subjective as opposed to like there are actual historic facts that are rooted in primary documentation. Um, and so, for example, one of the... Can you talk about the bridge? Like, um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good example of common memory. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. Let me let me give you one one example before I go there, though, because I think this is like an example of a historic fact that just is not well known, but it should be. So of the one hundred and twenty billion dollars worth of new housing that was subsidized by the federal government between 1934 and 1962, less than two percent of those funds went to non-white families. And so when you when you sit with the weight of that and then you look at the evolution of suburban development and you look at why many of our suburbs are still racially uh divided in the ways that they are and when we look at access to things like school funding and how that's connected to home ownership versus rentals like the stuff is not that you know, mysterious. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to make some of these connections, but we have to have some of these foundational historic realities to build out from. Um, but I think what you what you what you were uh, asking about with the bridge is another primary illustration. We have a bad problem with venerating people who have been on the wrong side of history and who have done things that really don't represent the best of who we are as a nation. Um, and so the Edmund Pettus Bridge is a classic example of this. Uh, there's a bridge where uh, it plays a foundational role in the city of Selma and the state of Alabama. And there was a choice to name the bridge after Edmund Pettus, who was one of the highest ranking members of the Ku Klux Klan, who literally gave his life to reinforce racial segregation and discrimination. And out of all the things that we could choose to honor and name and recognize within the city of Selma, where Bloody Sunday, particularly the bridge where Bloody Sunday took place, and faithful leaders like Dr. King and John Lewis and all these different people who are fighting and advocating for freedom and equality, why would we choose out of all of the different options to name a bridge after Edmund Pettus in a city that's overwhelmingly African-American has historically been so and continues to be so. Um, but it, that is that kind of choice. I think if more people had a more comprehensive understanding of the history and some of the ethical choices Pettus made, then I think that we would make a different kind of choice. And I think the fact that we don't make a different kind of choice uh, really leads to a disremembering um, and uh, a really kind of marginalization of why history actually matters as we really try to change the course and the tenor of our nation as we try to pursue a more just and equitable society for all people. Mm. Um, I believe you quote um, Esau Macaulay in this book. Am I right? Yes. Uh, Reading while black. Uh, yes. Great conversation with him recently, and really taught me a lot. And and as I was listening, I was listening to you read the book. So as I was listening to you read your book and your chapter on Moses, it was a reminder to me of things I had never thought about before as a mm -hmm. white woman reading about Moses's journey, and um, 
it's so important for us. This is a side note, guys, but it's so important for us to listen and learn from people who have different experiences than us. Because when you talked about Mo, I mean, I was just like, I've never thought about what it would have been like for him um, to live within a different culture for all those years. I, I mean, I just was like, Moses, he was in the basket. They found him. And then here he is leading God's people, you know, like <laughs> ignorant Jamie over here. If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike. And it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a -a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interest. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. 
Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. But I, I want to talk about a different chapter that you discuss in here, and that's Esther. Mm. And one of the things that was profound that you said in here is you said so many times we teach about Esther and we just go straight to when Esther stood up and, um, you know, saved her people and the rest of history has changed. But there's a long list of things that happened before then. And and you talk about what it's like for us as people when we see um, people dehumanized and oppressed and we stay silent about that. Yeah. And again, <laughs> I'm grateful for your work because I have just never read the story that way. And um, so, again, grateful for you. But can you talk with us a little bit about that privilege and that complicitness that we sometimes play in our neighbors? Um being ostracized or oppressed or exploited yeah so first i want to start with me because i really believe that one of the things that i try to be very intentional about is part of what gives us the integrity to say hard stuff is that people see that we're willing to look at our own lives and hold ourselves to the same standard that we're hoping other people live up to and so for me esther's chapter was really important for me as a african-american male to not just be willing to point the finger at other people in regards to the way that I suffer from on the short end of the conversation about privilege in regards to race, but don't also acknowledge the ways that I benefit as a male. Um, and so particularly as a pastor, I really wanted to challenge the way that we tell the story of Esther, because when we are willing to you know, brush past the suffering of Queen Vashti to just celebrate the the queenship of Esther, we become complicit with reinforcing uh, environments where sexual violence is rampant and we, we there's no accountability for it. Uh, we reinforce kind of elements of toxic masculinity that are so normative within our congregations and, you know, the rest of the world. And we also create a like that locker room talk. Stuff. Man, yeah, that, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And we create an environment where people who are causing um, harm feel comfortable within our congregations mm. because they don't believe that we're going to actually name what the text is actually trying to address. We're just going to breeze past it as if those are kind of insignificant or less important details because the real thing we're supposed to be focusing on is Esther's queenship. And so I, I think it's really important how we tell the story and what we choose to leave out and who that ultimately makes us miss and who therefore doesn't see the gospel as good news for them. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, uh, you know, the thing in both the Esther chapter and the uh, Moses chapter is, you know, when you're in the majority and the brokenness that exists systemically, institutionally, legislatively is working on your behalf, mm. it's hard to actually, the, way, the language I like to use is to, to go against your own self-interest. That's convicting. When the system's working for you, it's hard to say, like, you know what, while it's working for me, I also have eyes to see how it's not working for my neighbors over here. So instead of just going along with the system that works for me, I'm actually going to have the integrity to say that while it works for me, 
it doesn't work for all people. So it's not reflective of God's will. So let's pause the system and actually do some deconstruction so that we can reconstruct a system that works for all of God's children and promotes collective flourishing as opposed to flourishing for some at the expense of others. And, um, and let me just, I'm going to just say here real quick, this is, this is, this is dirty work. Like this yeah. is dirty heart work because I don't want to figure out what that is because then it makes me have to do something about it. Yeah. So like, I'm just going to go along, hippity hop through my life, give my tithe, show up every once in a while, do some kind of some work. But th- when I thought about this in my own personal life was there's a lot of, I live in Austin and a lot of stuff comes up. I actually don't get to vote in Austin anymore. I'm outside. That's beside the point. But a lot of stuff comes up every year about our homeless population. Mm-hmm. I mean, and this is a conversation that is going to make people really uncomfortable about what if it's... I don't want I don't want this these homeless camps by my neighborhood is what yep. you know. And so not in my backyard. Yeah. And so this is this is hard work people. So I want to encourage you like I enter into those feelings like be be willing to go up next to them and then think how do we actually believe that the flourishing of all God's people matters. And it's it's tough. It's really tough and you have led us well here. So keep going on. I interrupted you. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know in many ways I it's so beautiful that you actually lifted up those two those two examples because they dovetail on each other like it's so funny and i think i go to it more explicitly in the moses chapter so i'm gonna just drift back there real quick it's funny like you i'm sure there had to be an egyptian who understood that pharaoh was calling them into unethical behavior when he Mm -hmm. created a law that said that all hebrew boys must be put to death i'm sure there was an egyptian hopefully right that had a moral compass (laughs) to say you know what that's actually not right pharaoh (laughs) like but scripture does not account not a single egyptian who is willing to step up speak up and actually say like i'm not willing to go along with this Mm. like Yes, my economic flourishing is connected to the Egyptian empire's flourishing. And if I speak up, that probably is going to bring a disruption to not only the empire, but my own personal life. But because I know my flourishing comes literally at the expense of other people's lives, I'm not willing to flourish in this manner. I can think of a different way to flourish. Mm. And I think it's really hard when you live in a society where the status quo just goes along to get along to actually say, because of who and whose I am, I'm actually going to be a disruptive presence in the status quo and to say that something else is possible. There's a different way to think about how we flourish. There's a different way to think about how we thrive. That includes everybody Mm. and not just some people at the expense of others. This will really step on some toes, too, when you get into politics, because a lot of people will be like, you know what? We need to keep Jesus out of the politics. Church is what does Jesus. But then are we actually doing are we actually casting votes every year when we go vote actually make us look like we follow Jesus? Yeah. Or are we casting votes just to keep our flirt? I'm I'm asking myself here. This is I am not pointing a finger because I am thoroughly convicted in reading your book, you know, and so but that's one of the things that people have to ask is like. What do I have to sacrifice in order for other people to flourish? And that is difficult. 
Yeah, it reminds me kind of that particular pointed nature of the question and even the fact that you're in Austin. It reminds me of another, you know, book that I really enjoyed. And she spent some time in Austin going through uh, some stuff. But it's a book that came out maybe a year ago, two years ago, uh, The Sum of Us by Heather McGee, uh, where she talks about this, the, the notion of the zero sum game where if I actually give up something so that we can have a more collective vision of flourishing, I ultimately lose something. And this notion that by standing up or speaking up, I'm actually going to lose something and I'm actually doing a detriment to not only myself, but also my family. That's part of what keeps us aligned with the status quo and just going along to get along. And I think part of that for me as a Christian, it really comes back to the question of, do we believe that we follow a God that has created enough for everyone's needs and not just a God? And so I think, you know, that Shane Claiborne says it this way a lot. I believe we follow a God who's created enough for not for everyone's need, but not for everyone's greed. And I think we have to be able to be people who don't get in line with the status quo just because we follow a zero-sum game, but we actually believe that God is a God of abundance and has created enough for everyone, and so we don't have to hold so tightly to our piece of the pie, because if we actually uh, disconnect ourselves from the status quo and live missionally for the kingdom, and I really believe for the church, that means to make God's name known and love shown in the world. If we live in that way, that God has actually accounted for all the needs of all of creation. And so that there's enough to share. We don't have to cling in the same way that the rest of the world does. So good. I want to tell you guys um, what you go through in your book is uh, Pharaoh's daughter, which we talked about. Um, not very much, but Pharaoh's daughter, leveraging privilege to resist systematic sin. Esther, leveraging privilege to stand in solidarity. Moses, leveraging privilege to birth liberation. Paul and Silas, I wish we had time to go through all these, leveraging privilege to create systematic change. Jesus, abandoning, abandoning and leveraging privilege to proclaim the good news. Zacchaeus, leveraging privilege to foster social transformation. And then a call to repentance um, and what that looks like what fruit is producing us with repentance. So, so good. Subversive witness. Scripture's call to leverage privilege. I want to ask you about something else in your life. Yeah. Um, that is very intriguing and exciting and amazing to me is that you are a teacher for a seminary within a, um, it's a prison, right? Yeah, maximum security prison. Yep. Maximum security prison. I read this about you and I thought, well, he's now my favorite person in the whole entire world. <laughs> so this is amazing. So A, just tell me a little bit about this. Yeah. So uh, it's through North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago, Illinois. And um, we are the only state in the state of Illinois that provides master's level education for incarcerated people. Um, one of the reasons why that's so important is that it's been proven that the most effective and cost efficient way to reduce recidivism, which is once people are released from prison, them going back, is through access to higher education behind bars. And the higher access to education they have, the less likely a person is to go back. And so for every dollar we put into higher education behind bars, we receive a $5 return on our investment. There's nothing that's that effective. And uh, our program is really focused on how do we cultivate um, 
people who are conflict de-escalators in the midst of conflict-ridden spaces. And so the vast majority, well, there's few places in the world that are more conflict-ridden than our prisons and our jails. Um, but in addition to that, when these men and women are released, they're usually going back into communities that are riddled with conflict. We're trying to uh, foster conflict de-escalators who know how the game works and they can go back with that knowledge and actually de-escalate the conflict before it gets to the point that it's out of control. Um, it's connected to this whole community development proverb that says that those who are closest to the problem are also closest to the solution. And so if we really believe that, then what who better to equip to be conflict de-escalators than those who themselves have previously caused conflict in these same places and spaces. And so it's this great program where we're discipling men who are actively discipling men and women behind bars, bringing brothers and sisters to Christ in a context where a lot of times we as the church forsake the fact that we have brothers and sisters in Christ there. And um, so it's just this beautiful program and it's been so successful that we just expanded the program this year. Uh, previously, it was just in one institution that was just for men, and we just been invited uh, this semester into a new facility where we get to uh, do the same ministry alongside of our sisters. And we're actually getting calls throughout the region where people are seeing how the violence in the prison has been curtailed, and they've seen the impact of the faith community behind bars. And they're saying, can you send some of your students to our mm. facility as prison missionaries to create believing communities on our campus because we need to see the same kind of transformation. Jeez. Now, did I read here that with this program, you have um, inmates studying alongside uh, yep. civil? I don't know what we call them, civilians? What do you call them? We, we say free and incarcerated. Free students. and incarcerated. Yep. So is that correct? Yeah. So you've so got free people you go, who are showing up to the yep. prison for their classes. Yep. So they join cohorts together. So they'll walk to with each other over the course of the next four years, and they will learn together, they'll study together, and they will do life together. And it's this beautiful program where people can go, and if you're really specifically interested in this, you can go and you can do a master's degree alongside of your sisters and brothers who are behind bars and learn the realities of our punitive judicial system that does not bear witness to the restorative hope, transformation, um, and redemption that the gospel um, calls us to. That's so beautiful. Now, in this um, one where you teach, yeah. uh, you said it's maximum security. Have yep. you been there long enough or are there people who are being released or are you dealing yep. more with lifetime? OK, so you've so seen the vast majority of people in the institution we are in are, you know, sentenced to life. But because of some of the transformation that they have borne witness to and because of some of the fact that there are a number of sisters and brothers behind bars who don't really belong there, who have been too punitively sentenced for what they either did or were sometimes did not do. Um, so we've actually had a couple of people who've graduated and because of their enrollment in our program have been able to become part of our campus life um, on at North Park. And so it's a beautiful program. North Park sees the program as a manifestation 
of restorative justice and even to a degree reparations, because the vast majority of these men and women who are in this program uh, come from communities where they did not have access to adequate education on the outside. And they will tell you, I have better access to education behind bars than I ever did in my lifetime when I was a free person. And so it's this beautiful example of how the church can bear witness to who and whose it is by how it distinctly chooses to engage. And I would have never looked at it as reparations. And it is this small way of saying, hey, we're going to give back to you what you should have had before that you didn't get. Exactly. That is so amazing. I am yeah. giddy. I read that and I was like, that is so amazing. I'm giddy over that. Well, I am so grateful that you took the time to come on the show and we could have talked um, for hours and hours about more ways that we um, as followers of Jesus can really leverage the, pre- the privilege that we've all been given in some different areas of, of our of our life. If you guys want to get this book, I highly recommend it. I listen to it, but honestly, I'm going to tell you this. I'm an audio listener, but this is a book you're going to want to hold in your hands and underline and highlight. I just want to let you guys know. Um, You should get this book. Uh, You can get it wherever books. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. I would love to hear from you. What Are you reading anything these days? What are you loving? What's exciting to you? Yeah. Um, so the best book that I've read recently is called uh, How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. Um, he's a writer for The Atlantic. Uh, it's an amazing book um, where he is really interested in narrative, much like Brian Stevenson. And what he does is he goes all across the country to places that are tasked with telling history. And he listens to the narrative of the docent and that's presented in that institution. And he either tells you this is a good narrative and these are the reasons why these are good, or this is actually a narrative that's rooted in some distortions. And this wow. is why these distortions are so dangerous. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's, a, it's super accessible though, because he's also, every place he goes, he has conversations with other people who are just there to learn. And then he engages them in conversation afterward after he tells his two cents and then interacts with the uh the people who are there so it's great because he goes from everything from like a memorial to the daughters and the sons of the confederacy to he goes to uh galveston texas to learn about the origins and the traditions of juneteenth and so it's just this beautifully eclectic uh he goes to um uh the prison in louisiana uh that is notorious i am blanking my mind i right thought you're gonna say the prison in texas because we are notorious for <laughs> prisons and killing yeah. people angola angola okay. yeah he goes to angola prison which historically has known been known as the most bloodiest prison in the u.s's history uh mm-hmm. he goes there and he actually does the same kind of thing in angola so mm-hmm. it's great I'm going to check that out because I think one thing I've been hearing a lot of the past, you know, 
even five years is just this whole what we talked about a little bit here this common this common memory and really how that really does slant the way you think about things and I was listening to um David French are you familiar with David French yep okay yep. uh, I was listening to a podcast with him recently and he was talking about how so many Americans are feel as though if if we say like oh I love my country it means you can't also acknowledge what your country has done and been through and everything you listed the whole long list you listed at the beginning of like that was happening here on our soil by our country by our founders and so many people are like if I acknowledge that, then I must not love my country. And, you know, I've been to Rwanda and they brought that up. And they're like, if you go to Rwanda, there's no way you show up in Rwanda and you don't know what happened in 1994. I mean, yeah. you know, not because they're glorifying it, but because they're remembering it in the right way. And it changes everything that happens in that country is because they have a right memory of what happened in 1994. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting. I'm very interested in that book. Thank you for telling that. And let me, us. one other thing that I'm really excited about, I've been watching this new show that came out on Amazon Prime called Through Their Eyes. And it's this story, it, it traces these three young adults who are, uh, and I, I think, I hope I got the, the title right. I think that's it. Um, but it traces these, the story of these three young adults with um, who are on the autism spectrum. And they are trying to figure out young adulthood, uh, given some of their cognitive uh, impairments and some of the ways in which the world just they desire to be quote unquote normal so mm -hmm. badly. And like they're trying to figure out like, how do they navigate the complexities of what they're up against? And it's just a fascinating show as somebody who has uh someone with autism in um, my family uh and looking at their future and projecting it out um it's just this beautiful story of people trying to to reckon with privilege and some of the realities that so many of us take for granted because we don't have those same kind of challenges that's so good and i thought i hope that what you're hearing listener is that this proximity changes the way you see things. And although neither one of us are proximity to any of the characters in that show, because of technology, we get to actually see things that we might not experience on our own. And it changes the way we think about things. Uh, Dominique, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's been a joy to talk to you. And I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing. Thanks for allowing me to be with you and your community. You guys, what a phenomenal conversation. If you could have seen uh, my list of questions and things I wanted to talk to him about, you would have thought, well, I think this is going to be a podcast series, Jamie, not just 45 minutes. I really just enjoyed his conversation and enjoyed his work and love what he's doing. And goodness gracious is the work that he's doing in that prison. Not amazing. I was so impressed. You guys, he mentioned a lot of things, resources for kids, uh, the journeys that he takes people on. All of that is going to be in the show notes, all of it. So you cannot miss anything. If you're ever looking for show notes, go to jamieivy.com and then you can find the podcast and you can find the one you're listening to for this particular show. If you go to jamieivy.com slash hh. 476. That's for this episode, 476. Thank you so much for listening to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivy podcast. We are truly grateful for every single story that we get to share with you, every encouragement we get to give you, and every opportunity we get to point all of us to Jesus. If you're loving this show, we would really appreciate it if you would leave us a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, tell your friends. That is the number one way that people find out about our show. It's because you tell them. Join us right here every Wednesday and Friday for meaningful conversations that will make us think, they'll make us laugh, and they'll always point us back to Jesus. 
And come find me other places on the internet as well. I love Instagram. I'm over there at Jamie Ivy. And if you've never visited my YouTube page, you're going to want to go there. Have you ever listened to a show and wondered, I wonder what they look like? Well, go find us over there. It's jamieivy.com slash YouTube. The Happy Hour is produced by Lindsay Sweeney. Show notes are written by Abigail Castell. Graphics are by Amaya Savoy Easton. The show is edited by Angie Elkins. And I'm your host every week, Jamie Ivey. And goodness gracious, I love being here with you guys. Until next time, have a happy hour with a friend.